Hello, Blanche and Baby Jane and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And today is a first because we've got um, not one, but two wonderful guests on the pod to talk to us about their favorite movie year. Uh, Our first guest is a past president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and he teaches film criticism at UCLA. Uh, His byline has appeared at the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Hollywood Reporter, and many more. And he's also the author of several wonderful books, including Outrageous Conduct, Art, Ego, and the Twilight Zone Case, and Hollywood on the Couch. Folks, one of the greats, Stephen Farber. Hi, Stephen. Hi, good to be with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, And our second guest is a film commentator, historian, and author. He's the former senior vice president and head film buyer for Landmark Theaters, a former member of the Board of Appeals for the Classification and Ratings Administration of the MPA. And with Stephen, he presents a series of classic film screenings on their anniversaries at the Lemley Theaters in Los Angeles. Please joining me in saying hello to Michael McClellan. Hello, Michael. And hello there. And I'm very happy to be here. Well, thank you for coming on, you guys. And the reason, uh, this is not random, the reason we've invited both of these gentlemen on the show uh, at the same time is that they are the co-authors of the book, Cinema 62, The Greatest Year at the Movies, which, as you can guess, is a perfect book for discussion on this show. So first, I I guess I first I want to thank you guys, because usually when we have authors come on, you know, we plug their book, we spend a few minutes promoting that, and then I have to kind of awkwardly pivot to asking what year did you choose and why? Uh, But with your book, we don't have to do that because the book answers uh, that question itself. So uh, for those who haven't read it, though, why is 1962 the greatest year at the movies? It was a a sort of a pivotal year, I think, for both of us in our uh, growing up. You know, we actually uh, were alive in 1962. (laughs) I know some of your guests talk about a year before they were born, which is fine, too. But uh, I was uh, actually a freshman in college in 1962. So I'm, I'm dating myself, but there you are. People can find out anyway. So it was, (laughs) I had always been like a movie buff um, when I was growing up, loved going to the movies and loved all different kinds of movies. But that year of 1962, it was sort of part of my burgeoning college education. I really saw so many outstanding films and they all made a huge impression on me. And at that point, I mean, I wasn't thinking about writing a book. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but the movies had stayed with me all that time. And uh, when Michael and I met like uh, 40 years later, we (laughs) discovered that not only, I mean, I was a film critic, he was a theater exhibitor. So obviously we had both seen a lot of movies, but in a conversation, we discovered that both of us looked on 1962 as a high point in the whole history of cinema. And I say, I had, and I think uh, Mike had uh, seen some of them in 62 when they came out and some of them you saw later. I didn't see them all in 62 either. I think some of the movies I saw afterwards and some of them I appreciated more in subsequent years. But it just seemed like it was a great uh, a range of many different kinds of movies that were being done and that were very successful. It was sort of the heart of the foreign film explosion in this country. And we'll get to that a little more and talking about one of the specific foreign films that had a huge impact. And those movies were very stimulating. But but the American movies, the Hollywood movies were also very exciting. They range. A lot of them were serious dramas. Uh, There were Westerns. There were thrillers. There were comedies. It, it sort of touched every base, but um, high quality in every uh, field of film, I think. Michael, do you think there was anything that was sort of happening in the industry at that moment that was of particular significance in terms of creating so many high quality pictures around this time? 
Yeah, I mean, basically, from year to year to year, uh, you're um, you're on a sort of a crap roll, because like a roll of the dice, because yes. you know, because 1963, the quality you know, went went way down, and and then and then it rolled in from that. Um, in 61, that was a halfway decent year, but nothing. Yeah, like, that was a good movie. Yeah, so 61. Yeah. yeah this, so the early 60s were 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 a real transitional point in Hollywood because the studio system had been in decline since the 50s. Right. A lot of actors and uh, producers and directors went independent in, in the 50s and they formed their own production companies and they were having their films released through through the major studios. So it, it was a real collection of um, in-house uh, and they had been, and the studios had been shedding their in-house writers and their craftspeople. And so that's what was going on. And, and as Stephen alluded to, um, there was this uh, very fertile uh, international global uh, film cinema phenomenon going on. And that was reflected in the art houses, in, in the American art houses of the period, which were flourishing because they were right. playing all of those films. And those films were um, popular because they dealt with uh, uh, basically adult themes and adult material. And um, and for the uh, more um, visceral folks, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of semi-nudity and sexuality that you would never see in an American movie. So right. it was a combination of that, of the of the rise of the independent production, the, the decline of the Hollywood system. And they were also, uh, you know, in the studio, they were willing to take more chances because they had to come. Uh, they had to compete with, with with the international influx coming into the country, and uh, and also to satisfy their uh, you know the actors and because the contract st system was still in place, it was in serious decline, but it was still there. Marilyn Monroe example was was still under contract at 20th Century Fox in 1962. The the year that she passed away. That totally makes sense. No, okay. So, so now we're we're we, you sort of set the scene for us in terms of what's happening in Hollywood going into 1962. Before we get into some of these particular these specific movies that you've picked out for us, Mike is going to fill us in on what was happening outside of Hollywood in that year. So let's hear some headlines. January 9, 1962, Cuba and the Soviet Union signed a trade pact. Okay. February 3, 1962, we put an embargo on Cuba that went into effect on February 7th, so not quite a month later. And you haven't been able to get a decent cigar in this godforsaken country ever since. True. Yes. In 1957, convicted Russian spy Rudolf Abel was sentenced to 30 years, escaping the death penalty after his attorney argued that the United States might want to swap Abel for an American at some future time. Now, Abel has been exchanged for U-2 pilot Gary Powers. Powers was sentenced by Russia to 10 years in 1960, and only weeks ago wrote his family that he had little hope of an early release. But negotiations between the two governments bore fruit. Since his release, Powers was not immediately available for photographs. February 10, captured CIA agent Francis Gary Powers was exchanged for Soviet spy Rudolf Abel in Berlin. That's a movie. I've seen that movie. That's Bridge of Spies. <laughs> Steven Spielberg. <laughs> that... Good picture. Yes, it is. And uh, they told us that he was just like, you know, he was just flying his balloon, bro. It was just, it was uh, just a weather just balloon. Out, out but no, he was. Flight. Yeah. He was definitely a CIA agent. Also in January, the Ranger 3 rocket was supposed to crash into the moon. And the idea was that it would send images back to, to the United States, back to NASA for the last 10 minutes before it crashed into the moon and presumably would basically be destroyed, assuming it's not made out of cheese. So that failed by 22,000 miles in January. Uh, but by in that much. Yeah, by that much. I mean, relative to the universe, that much. Okay, fair. Uh, but then uh, in April, the Ranger 4 nailed it. All right, great. Can I get a USA? Yeah, USA, USA. Yay, science. <laughs> Yay, science. Getting it done in the 60s. I mean, you want to at least like send a, a, a not very good camera into it before you try to send peoples. Fair. Make sure you're not going to miss by 22,000 miles when the peoples are on. <laughs> 
In June, the Students for a Democratic Society released the Port Huron Statement, a document that would basically kind of define the protest movements of the next 10 years. It is available online, and it is still an inspiring read about grappling with being an American in all of its best and worst aspects. Also in June, the Supreme Court ruled in Engel versus Vitale that mandatory prayer in school is unconstitutional. And as far as I know, Ron DeSantis has not been able to overturn that decision yet. Not yet. Yeah, we got about a six-week window right now, or a runway between when we record and when it hits air. So I feel like we got about a 50-50 shot of that still being accurate when this hits. On the same day was the decision in Manual Enterprises versus Day, when the Supreme Court decided that photographs of nude men are not obscene, which decriminalized nude male porn. All right. And not porn, like just, you know, some frontal in your, yes. in your like, serious 70s movie, you there know? There you go. Uh, And I just want to point out that Manuel Enterprises is spelled capital M, capital A, capital N, lowercase U-E-L. Men. Yes. Very good, Mike. Very good, Mike. In case you weren't sure what they were doing there. There you go. Uh, Well, you sort of know what the target audience is was there, right? (laughs) (laughs) In July, Algeria became independent from France. Yay! Hip, hip, hooray. Yay! And later in the summer, both Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago got their freedom. Yay! We always like to celebrate that. Yep. One of the most famous stars in Hollywood history is dead at 36. Marilyn Monroe was found dead in bed under circumstances that were in tragic contrast to her glamorous career as a comic talent. On the surface, she seemed to have such a zest for life. And on August 5th, as previously mentioned, Marilyn Monroe is found dead of a drug overdose, and people are still arguing about whether or not it was intentional. Well, you know what? Here's all. Here's what I say. Thumbs down to the Grim Reaper. That was a bad call uh, taking Marilyn from us. Do not care for that. Yeah. Do we want to take a, a show position on on uh, on the intentional question or not? Uh, we want to leave no, it mysterious. No, because whatever no. whatever you say, someone will yell at you <laughs> online about it. So no, we have no we have the show has no official stance on uh, on Marilyn's uh, cause. Of Other it. than it just being a bad thing in general, just being a fucking bummer is what yeah. it was. Yes, yeah, agreed. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. But the big news in 62 in October was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yep. Eventually, Soviet submarine Vasily Akhapov refused to launch nuclear torpedoes. So that was a very big deal because he sort of got instructions and decided not to do that. Yeah. And uh, if if you don't like living in caves, that's a very big deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So thank you to the one guy <laughs> who decided not to destroy humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are lots of documentaries about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, it's a very tense situation that could have had very serious consequences. Um, the best part is that we still have plenty of nukes, so we haven't given up the chance to do it all again. Yay. Great. Super smart of yeah. us. Some very important cultural things went down in 62. The Rolling Stones played their first show at London's Marquee Club. And the world has been infected by that invasive species ever since. We will not have any (laughs) anti-Rolling Stones slander on the program. Uh, I love the Stones. I especially (laughs) love... Honestly, I really like this early period where they were just playing a whole bunch of blues covers and just like... Just kind of nailing it. I really like this... Like 62, 63, those first few albums are great. They still, still play. Still play. Also, The Beatles' Love Me Do came out and the first James Bond film, Dr. No. Yep, yep. Good, good. All good things. Good good culture. Yes, hooray. I realize now the way I set that up, it felt like I was taking the Beatles' side in the war. <laughs> you you really, really did. my purpose. You really did. Yes. <laughs> you had no harsh words. 1962 saw the publication of uh, the novel versions of A Clockwork Orange and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If you don't know, they eventually made movies out of both of those. Yep. If you'd like to hear about the movies, uh, listen to our 1971 and 1975 episodes, respectively, where those very good movies got covered. Plug, plug, plug. The first Target store opened in 1962 in Roseville, Minnesota, and the first Walmart opened in Rogers, Arkansas. Mike, are you a Target or a Walmart guy? You know, Target supposedly pays for their people to go to college. All right, fair So, Target guy. Also, it's closer to my house. Fair enough. Steven? A Target. Good. Yes, Mike. Mike? 
It's unanimous. Target. Yay. Target wins. <laughs> Big electoral victory for Target on the show today. Batting a thousand. Yep. Some people were born that you've heard of. Yep. In 1962, Jim Carrey, Jennifer Jason Lee. Yep. Okay. Uh, I got one for you. Here you go. Uh, Axl Rose, Garth Brooks, John Bon Jovi, and Chuck Palahniuk. Okay. That's, it's a nightmare yeah. blunt rotation. Yeah, seriously. The wordsmith himself, David Foster Wallace, uh, Steve Irwin, Scott LaRock, Jackie Joyner Kersey, Taylor Dane. You remember Taylor Dane? Tell I know it, you remember Taylor Dane, heart, Jason Mike. Bailey. Tell it to yes. my heart. Tell me, I'm not, tell me I'm the only one. You're of the right age to remember Taylor yeah. Dane, and I know that because so am I. Jasmine Guy, Matthew Broderick, Rosie O'Donnell, MC Hammer. Wow. Yeah, 60 years old. Could probably still dance, I'm yeah, guessing. probably so. Emilio Estevez, MasterChef Farron Adria, Gina Gershon, Ali Sheedy, Paula Abdul, 80s heartthrob Thomas Mapather IV. Have you ever heard of him? I have not. Uh, what, what was he in? He's, he's better known as, as Tom Cruise. Yeah. Oh, ah. Right. Of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah you, you've, I figured you might have heard of him. Bobcat Goldthwait, uh, Jazzy Jeff, Steve Albini, Bo Jackson, Felicity Huffman, Ralph Fiennes, uh, Alton Brown, Wesley Snipes, Patrick Ewing. A lot of people are 60 years old. Yeah. Uh, right now. Michelle Yao having a, having a, Yow. a stellar 60th. Yao. The- Yes. Steve Carell, David Fincher, Baz Luhrmann, Joan Cusack, Bob Odenkirk, Carrie Elwes, yeah, Demi Moore, Jodie Foster, and Mr. Jonathan Leibowitz, aka John Stewart. Remember when Trump would always call him that? That wasn't weird. Yeah. That wasn't weird or anything. That wasn't. No, yeah. had no purpose nope. whatsoever. Nope, not at all. Yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot about that when I yeah. linked it with the Tom Cruise thing. Yeah. Now you made me look like an asshole. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> on March 2nd, Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points on the New York Knicks. Now, I'm not Whoa. I'm not a sports guy, but I, that's a big deal. That was a big deal when that happened. I do know that that was, that was important. When he scored 100 points, one player scored 100 points in a single game. Pretty big deal. He wasn't passing a lot, though. I got to say, it doesn't sound like he was <laughs> passing too much that game. Did they win that game or... Uh, uh, they, yes. Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, maybe he scored a lot, but he didn't do any D, you know? I don't know. Carol Cox became the first woman driver at a National Hot Rod Association event. All right. She won the Superstock class at the 1962 NHRA Winter Nationals. Nice. That was exciting. Yeah. I think they were afraid her ovaries were going to fly out of her ears <laughs> driving that fast. Yeah. But it turned out that was all bullshit. Yeah, pretty much. And now that final combination, the left, the grazing right... And then a solid left. Around Sonny Liston, the 21st heavyweight champion of the world, jubilation for Floyd Patterson, the former champion, consolation. Sonny Liston knocked out Floyd Patterson in the first round to become world heavyweight champion. That was very exciting. First 1962. round. 1962. Shit. First round. Yeah, people who paid for those tickets were annoyed. Oh, they barely got out of dinner and the thing was over. Uh, and finally, there was a World Cup in 1962. Pele added to his growing legend when Brazil defended their 1958 win by beating Czechoslovakia 3-1, to becoming only the second country in history to go back-to-back. And uh, other than sort of being non-political during that whole dictatorship time, it was great to add to Pele's there you go. record, and he was a beautiful man and good for Brazil. That's headlines. All right. Thank you, Mike. All right, Stephen and Michael, you ready to do a top five? We are. All right, great. So we're we're gonna you know we had to do all sorts of new logistics in the pre-show. Uh, we're gonna when we have two guests, so we're gonna rotate, uh, and we're just gonna kind of take these. These are just the the five that you guys uh, thought sort of most encapsulated what was happening and what was exciting about the year 1962. So uh, Michael is going to start us off. And Michael, what is the first film in your 1962 top five? Our first film is Days of Wine and Roses. Here is the star of Some Like It Hot and The Apartment, Jack Lemmon, to tell about his new role. Hi. Uh, that on where they can hear me? Could be a disaster. You just... Uh... Saw some excerpts from several scenes in our new movie called Days of Wine and Roses. It's, it's very representational for the year because of the fact that it is an adaptation. Almost 85% of the of movies made in, in, in Hollywood in, in 1962 were adaptations. There was oh, wow. not a lot of original material at that time. 
Jack Lemmon, also known primarily as a comedy actor. He had scored great success, uh, Mr. Roberts and Some Like It Hot and The Apartment. And he was he was plunging into a very deep drama. Uh, how which was how risky. common was that? Yeah, how common was that at the time? Because now it's sort of part of the playbook when you're a comedy right, superstar. Right, exactly. Because, you know, he had been typed basically, you know, uh, because all even in his early films with with, with like Judy Holiday in the early 50s right. and all, they were all light romances and, and it went from there. Um, yeah, so that was very bold for him. And, uh, and you know, it, it, it was risky because, uh, you know, he was switching gears. Lee Remick, his co-star, um, she had started in the late 50s and she was a bright young starlet um, and she was uh, she was being groomed um, into uh, full-blown stardom. And um, that was the uh, setup. She, she also appeared earlier in the year from another Blake Edwards film. Do you know that one? I, I don't. Which one is that? Experiment in Terror. Another, oh, another, my goodness. Another drama. Exactly. Yeah. So Mr. Edwards was very busy in 1962. He actually wrote two other movies. Oh, my God. And direct them in 62. Um, and uh, and he was still and he was just coming off of his triumph with Breakfast at Tiffany's. So that's your setup. And and the, and the film plays out um, into the um, maelstrom where they con- where they are entrapped by alcoholism. The uh, it's, it's it's a very heavy duty drama in the second half. Um, lots of uh, uh, despair and psychodrama going on, right. but extremely well done, and with a resolution that really isn't one. It's it's sort of an open ending, um, yeah. kind of downbeat. Um, most 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 other elements in it. Great black and white cinematography. Why would you want to make a movie like this in color? You wouldn't. Right. And right. and and the black and white cinematography is also very uh, very representation of what was going on. The majority of movies made in 1962 were in black and white. Uh, people who went to the movies, they were mostly in a black and white world. So for all those reasons, Days of Wine and Roses is is um, top five. All right. So Stephen. What then is our number four movie for 1962? Okay, so now I'm going to talk about one of the foreign films that, uh, as I we had mentioned before, was really uh, one of the things that made 1962 so exciting. So many of the great uh, directors of the world, uh, Kurosawa, Fellini, Antonioni, Bergman, De Sica, Abunuel, all working on major films in 1962. But the one that I'm going to talk about is by a younger, newer filmmaker, Francois Truffaut, and his masterpiece, uh, uh, Jules and Jim. Qui c'est, Jules? C'est moi. Et vous? Jim. Jim et Jules, alors? Ben non, Jules et Jim. <laughs> Elle avait des bagues à chaque doigt, des tas de bracelets autour des poignets, et puis elle chantait avec une voix. Attention, prêt. Tout le monde, voilà. Oh. Elle avait des yeux, des yeux normales, qui me fascinaient, qui me fascinaient. Il y avait le vague de son visage pâle, de femme fatale qui me fut fatale, de femme fatale qui me fut fatale. Which I think has endured through the last 60 years as one of the great movies of that period. For one thing, it was sexually daring. And that, uh, as Michael mentioned earlier, that was something that you saw in foreign films that you didn't see in too many Hollywood movies of that time, because it was really about a menage a trois, um, two men in love with the same woman and sharing her sexually, actually, as the story turns out. In fact, the movie was considered so shocking that it was condemned by the Catholic Legion of Decency, which had a lot of impact at that time. Uh, movies that got condemnations from, from the Catholic Legion. Um, you know, Catholic viewers were not supposed to go see them, but I think they did <laughs> anyway, in many cases, <laughs> but it was. And then other people, then other people knew which ones to go seek yes, out. Yes, absolutely. It did work <laughs> on both levels, but, uh, it's so, I mean, it was, it was a daring theme in that regard, but it was also an exciting piece of filmmaking. Truffaut 
was really experimenting with all the techniques of cinema. It was like, this was his, actually his third feature film, and he had shown this same technical experimentation in the other two, 400 Blows and Shoot the Piano Player. But here it really came to fruition, and he just used all kinds of inventive cinema language to tell the story. It was both a romantic film and a, a very uh, a melancholy film about the failures of love as well as the exhilaration of it. So it worked on many different levels. It's revived all the time. Still today, you can see it. I think it's considered one of the great foreign language films. And I should add that the performance of uh, Jean Moreau as Catherine, uh, the woman loved uh, by the two men, is one of the seminal performances in all of international cinema, not just in 62. But uh, she had been acting for a few years before that, but this was her signature role, I think, and the one that people always remember. She played a very complicated character, not completely sympathetic, but absolutely um, fascinating, enthralling throughout the movie, and really put her on the map as much as anything she had done. And she remained a, a screen siren and great actress and became a film director as well. So it, it was crucial to uh, for her and for audiences. And I might say, um, just uh, except for the final movie that we're being discussing, that we will be discussing, all four of the other movies that we have picked have very strong female roles. And uh, that's uh, maybe not typical of all the movies of 1962, but it shows what a, a varied year it was. It had you know, male-oriented movies, uh, a war movies, sure. cowboy movies, but it also had a lot of great roles for actresses, and Jules and Jim is one of the peaks in that regard. All right, so uh, so our third film, we're going to go back to Michael for uh, for the next one. Uh, speaking of of strong female leading characters, Michael, what is the what is the third film in your top five? All right, the third number three. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Sister, sister, oh so fair, why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Which, oh, yes. which was uh, which a potent example of what was really going on in Hollywood and its treatment of, of actresses, basically. Yeah. So you had two uh, golden age superstars, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Both, both had been uh, phenomenally successful. Joan Crawford in the 30s, primarily, that was her uh, huge successful decade. Betty Davis at the, in the late 30s and, and then throughout the 40s. And then they both hit a, a bump in the road in the 50s. And uh, after all about Eve for Betty Davis, it was all downhill for, for, for the next decade. Joan had a little better luck in the 50s. She had some popular successes, but her run was over by the end of the 50s. And they were both, um, they were both in their 50s at that point in 1962. And they didn't know what to do because um, uh, they were not being offered the kind of uh, roles that they had flourished in you know, earlier in their careers. So along came this little property, um, Robert Aldrich, the macho filmmaker. One thing about this film is, aside from assigning these these roles, this was a very unusual uh, casting choice because these actresses had never done a film like this. Miss um, Miss Davis had done villains in her, and then Crawford was always you know her steely self. But um, but but now you have Crawford playing a victimized cripple because it's at the mercy of her of her sister who is slowly descending into madness as you're watching the movie, and um, so it's this real psychological tug of war going on, and very dark. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, comic moments in the first half, so it's basically a black comedy, and then it shifts gears into a real psychological suspense thriller so 
at the time, audiences were mesmerized by what was going on, and it was basically sold as a shocker in the, in the mode of Psycho. So in the end, what is this film? Is it a camp classic? Because that's that's this that's this reputation uh, which 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 occurred through the years. Is it a psychological horror story? Is it a Morden satire on Hollywood, much like Sunset Boulevard, which it resembles in tone and structure? So, um, so what is it? And the answer is all of the above. Yes, indeed. All right, gentlemen. Uh, the next entry on your list you asked to do together. So what is the fourth of your top five of 1962? Well, the next movie that we do was one of the biggest successes of 1962. And it was an adaptation of a tremendously successful novel, uh, A To Kill a Mockingbird. Ladies and gentlemen, Gregory Peck. The world never seems as fresh and wonderful, as comforting and terrifying, as good and evil, as it does when seen through the eyes of a child. For a writer to capture that feeling is remarkable. And perhaps that is why one book in the last few years has been so warmly embraced by tens of millions of people. To Kill a Mockingbird. By Harper Lee. And I think someone had just asked me, uh, you know, how do the film versions of classic novels compare? There's been a lot of writing about that. And many people think, oh, they can never live up to the novel. This is a rare case where I think it was... Uh, very faithful to the novel by Harper Lee, one of the most faithful adaptations I think that's ever been done. And so I think both the novel and the film have a life of their own and uh, really are much loved by people all over the world, actually, both the, the novel and the film. And just to follow up on our theme of uh, strong female characters. I mean, this was written by a female author. And so there right. weren't a lot of female filmmakers in 1962. There were a few, but this was a novel by a woman writer. And her main character really was her own surrogate, this young girl right. scout. And uh, that's who we see the film through her eyes. It's her older adult version who, who narrates the movie. Kim Stanley does the uh, narration. So it's really very much told from her point of view. Yeah. And the film's reputation, of course, is has been carried on through the years because of Gregory Peck in the, in, in the role of Atticus Finch, the lawyer who defends a Black man accused of raping a white woman. And that's the main heart of the film. But aside from that... Um, the, the film is a tremendous evocation of, of, of childhood in, yeah. in, in films. I mean, um, that's the other part of that film, which, which most people, well, not most people, but some people, um, you know, don't, don't think about when they're watching it because they concentrate on the, uh, on Peck the and the, drama. And the, the yeah. courtroom drama going on. Right. Right. And the implications for the uh, racial uh, uh, society you know, at the point, because, we're, we're talking about the Deep South in the 1930s, but because it's set in the past, it still is reflecting what was going on in the in the early 60s with with the, with the burgeoning civil rights movement. So, so, so the movie's uh, important as well in that regard. I will only tell you before we move on that Mike and I also have a bit of a personal connection to To Kill a Mockingbird as we, uh, Mike and I went to high school together and we did in fact put up a, uh, a stage production of To Kill a Mockingbird at our high school as well, in which we both appeared. Um, oh, great. I played, I played Atticus Finch. Good for and, you. Uh, and Mike played uh, Sher Sheriff Hectate, if I'm recalling correctly. <laughs> I believe that's correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was a great, uh, it, was a, it was a way to, you know, because you're, if you're going to do the play, you got to read the book. Yep. If you're going to read the book, you're going to read, the, you're going to watch the movie. Watch the movie. You know, and it was a real, like, it was a real sort of dive into this, this, this idea that was interesting because it's easy to sort of, when you're like growing up in the 80s and, you know, high school in the early 90s and stuff that, this sort of concept is being formed that we had, you know, like Rosa Parks didn't 
like moved from her seat and then Martin Luther King gave a nice speech and then like racism was right. just like, you know, bing, bang, boom, like good job. You yeah. know, sort of eight, Ronald Reagan's 80s America wanted us to sort of feel like that was a fairly a seamless transition. And this was the first sort of like real deep diving on that show it was the first time that it was like, why isn't this obvious? Right. <laughs> like all this stuff he's saying seems like it ought to be obvious. It's a, it was a good entry point. Yeah. Great movie. Great movie. All right. So we've reached the the, the peak of the mountain. Um, and I will tell our listeners that, uh, and you'll you'll find this yourselves when you guys pick up Cinema 62, the greatest year at the movies. Uh, the format, which I really dig, is that, you know, it's told in several chapters that sort of uh, organize the films of 62 over sort of broad thematic ideas. And there are several films covered in each chapter, but then the last chapter only covers one film. Uh, the title of the chapter is crowning achievement. So Stephen, <laughs> what is the crowning achievement? What is the last film on your top five for 1962? Uh, so it's a David Lean's epic film, uh, a Lawrence of Arabia. He was a very great man. He was a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior. He was also the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey. What, in your opinion, do these people hope to gain from this war? They hope to gain their freedom. There's one born every minute. They're going to get it, Mr. Bentley. I'm going to give it to them. and the Together, they made history. Which won the Academy Award for, as Best yep. Picture of the Year, seven Oscars total. I, I should say, yes. just in introducing it, I just went to see the movie again last week at the oh new my. Academy uh, Museum Theater in Los yeah. Angeles, which is like a, a thousand-seat theater, and it was... Not completely full, but I'd say there were 900 people of the thousand seats wow. seeing this movie from 1962 on the big screen. It was a 70 millimeter print, looked fantastic, uh, and the uh, audience was totally with it. I mean, people forget. I mean, it's an adventure film, psychological study. It also has moments of humor, which was that's why yeah. it's great seeing movies with an audience because they picked up on the humor, the ironies in the movie, and they also were swept up in the adventure and a lot of applause at the end, of course. And so this was the first time I'd seen it on the big screen in about 10 years since they had the 50th anniversary. This was close right. to the 60th already. But it, we were, as, as Michael had mentioned, most of the major movies of 62 were in black and white. This, of course, was an opposite extreme, an epic uh, technicolor widescreen movie. And as was pointed out at the Academy screening by um, someone who was talking about the composer of the film, uh, Amori Jar, this film was done before there was CGI. There was no computer right. technology to enhance, to add people, you know, in scenes where there were thousands of uh, Arab tribesmen riding. There really were thousands of, of tribesmen. Um, it was yeah. nothing was faked. I mean, they shot it on location in, in the desert and it had a magnificent look to it that uh, you just... It, the sensual appeal of the movie was, was amazing. That's what an epic yeah. can do is like immerse, immerse you into the locations where this story is taking place. But also the psychological depth of it was astonishing. Just creating a character at the center of the movie played by Peter O'Toole, who is not a conventional hero. He does right. perform some amazingly heroic and courageous act during the course of the story. And it's based on true events, embellished, of course. But he also is a tortured person who is not 
just a pure hero like we had been seeing in a Cecil B. DeMille movie of the 50s right. or epics where you, you didn't have the ambiguities that you got in this movie. So, I mean, I, I always describe it as being the best of both worlds in that it really captured the essence of what epic cinema should be. It was told on a grand scale, but it also had the psychological depth that you would find in uh, uh, great novels of the period that were um, taken very seriously. So you could enjoy it on more than one level. You could enjoy it as an adventure, and it certainly is compelling in that regard. But also going into what motivated this character, his lust for success, his lust to lose his British identity in the desert and become sort of an Arab himself, which was doomed to failure and trying to unite the Arab tribes. Uh, just the politics of the movie were very interesting and very timely. <laughs> one of the, the points that we make in the book is that, um, you know, one of the rationales for the uh, Iraq war, which just celebrated, not celebrated is not the right word, but it's uh, 20th anniversary, was that, oh, this was going to bring all these warring factions together and form a democratic government in Iraq. That never happened. And if you watched uh, this movie, you would see why it didn't happen, because there were all kinds of fierce tribal uh, rivalries and conflicts that the film works on so many levels, uh, uh, the political, the sociological, the psychological, the epic adventure level. I mean, you can really enjoy it uh, from all of those perspectives. And that's why I think it stands out as the greatest movie of the year and, and one of the greatest movies of all time. I think that a lot of people would agree with that uh, evaluation uh, even today. Right. Very much so. God, incredible movie. All right. You guys, thank you so much for this top five. You've made a, a, a very compelling case that 62 was indeed the greatest year at movies. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore the best of cinema streaming anytime, anywhere. And Mubi has several first-rate movies from 1962 streaming in the U.S., and we, of course, both gravitated towards the sexploitation movies from that year, streaming as part of the By NWR collection. Those are movies that are restored and presented by Drive director Nicholas Winding Refn. Uh, I checked out Satan in High Heels, which, I'm sorry, even if the movie stunk, is one of the all-time great <laughs> titles. But it doesn't stink. It's this fantastic, you know... Uh, first of all, New York movie, like yay for me, uh, this period in the, you know, the early sixties, uh, some, some in the fifties as well, when they would shoot some New York movies on location because, you know, they were independent movies. They were exploitation movies. They were low budget things. This one has a lot of great photography of the sort of midtown 57th, 59th street area. Um, but also, you know, it's just this great story of this terrible you know not terrible she's fun she's a femme fatale who uh steals a bunch of money from her recovering junkie husband she's like dancing in the you know the burlesque show at the circus or whatever and then she goes into midtown new york and remakes herself as a, a nightclub chanteuse uh, and gets in bad with uh, a rich dude and his son uh it's great it's sleazy and a little dirty but not like gross oh, I don't know I really liked Satan in High Heels uh, check that one out Mike what did you watch from 1962 streaming in the US I very much enjoyed a movie called House on Bear Mountain See? which is what was the phrase you used I think you said they called them nudie cuties it is a nudie cutie <laughs> it's very much a nudie cutie yes 
It is basically an episode of the Benny Hill Show. I don't know if anybody remembers the Benny Hill <laughs> Show, but I certainly do. Of Only made into a movie and with, with actually having the boobs out. Sure. There's literally jokes in the movie about how many showers the girls take <laughs> who live in the in the house on Bear Mountain. So there's uh, some little like you know some jokey uh, horror elements mixed in. There's a sort of a bootlegging um, subplot Good. Good. going on. It is a nudie cutie. It is a funny movie. It's a fun movie. It's light and easy to watch. There we go. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash a very good year. That's M-U-B-I.com slash a very good year for a whole month of great cinema for free. Free. Let's find out what films then were winning trophies and making money. Here's awards and box office. Sell out. With me, oh yeah, sell out with me tonight. The record Oscar winner, as previously mentioned, best picture, best director to David Lean, and five others, Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia. A fine, fine film, as we've mentioned. Uh, what else, Mike? Yeah, well earned. Uh, best actor, Gregory, uh, right, Peck, to yes. kill a mockingbird. Yes, yeah. well, yeah. well deserved, yes. Yeah. yeah. Best actress went to Anne Bancroft, and best supporting actress to Patty Duke for The Miracle Worker. Gentlemen, thoughts on The Miracle Worker? Yes, it's a it's an excellent film. Another adaptation. It actually started as a teleplay, and then it right. Yeah, which which, which, which most people don't realize that, uh, and then it went, went to Broadway, and that's what it was adapted from again. But again, this was considered um, not an a a uh, a tier. For the studios, and so they wanted uh, bigger movie stars in in this film. And when the uh, producer and the you know and, and the directors refused, then 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 he brought in the Broadway cast, almost intact. Like a couple of the supporting parts were changed, but what the leads uh, Bancroft and, and and Duke were were in. And um, yes, it's a it's a again black and white, the yep. the the glorious black and white. And um, yeah, also um, also two strong female characters, you know. Yes, there exactly. you go. Right. There, there so go. I mean, our, our theme. Not that these were only movies of the year, mm. but it was another example of that. And it's uh, based on a true story, of course, uh, and very moving, very compelling. It was successful yes. at the time, and uh, I I don't know if it's watched as much now as it has been. But uh, it's it's a beautifully told story. Yep. I, I how often do you see the actress and supporting actress coming out of the same movie? I yeah. feel like that's a that's pretty cool. Mm. Um, best supporting actor went to Ed Bagley. I'm assuming senior. Yeah. Uh, for Sweet Bird of Youth. Correct. Yeah. Sweet Bird of Youth. Yeah. Great uh, movie. Was, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, he was a surprise winner. He was uh, just as surprised as, as the audience was. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was an upset. Uh, with, 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 the, the favorite was Omar Sharif going in, but oh, uh, Ed Begley. Actually, both Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke, they, they were upsets as well. So it was a big night for uh, shockers at the Oscars in, <laughs> in uh, that year. So Imagine that. Yes, surprise. <laughs> And best foreign film. Can you imagine the pile this must have sat on top of? Sundays in Cybell. I mean, we've been talking about the foreign movies that came yeah. out this year this whole time, you know. Yeah, that's that's not a movie that's, um, you know, revived as much as some of the other films. But it really affected audiences at the time. It was a very touching mm. story about yes. a former soldier and a young girl um, who he tries to help and then their relationship is misunderstood. Uh, it would be an interesting movie to revisit now in terms of the Me Too era, I think. Yeah, definitely. Some other big award winners. Uh, the Golden Globe for Best Comedy went to That Touch of Mink. Uh, Doris Day, Cary Grant. Uh, this was a huge, huge, huge smash hit. Um, um, it made uh, Miss Day the queen of the box office in 1962. She was the number one uh, top uh, highest grossing, not that great a movie, however. <laughs> That's the problem with that touch of mink. Yeah, there weren't a lot of great comedies in 62, which is why that touch of mink won that award. And it doesn't hold up too well. So I, I would advise your uh, uh, listeners choose some of the other 62 movies that you haven't seen. You could skip that touch of mink. <laughs> 
there you go. Golden Globe for Best Musical went to The Music Man. Another role that I played in high school. Sorry. Oh. Okay, I'm done reliving my, my high school <laughs> drama glory days. Were you Professor Harold Hill? I, I was indeed Professor Harold Hill, yes. Oh. What do you know about that? <laughs> did you sell clarinets to the kids in the town? Coronets and the kids in the town? <laughs> I, sure, I sure did. And I told, I warned them about uh, uh, trouble with a capital T, which stands for P, which rhymes with pool or however it works. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. 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 yeah, absolutely. Robert Preston reprising his the uh, the Broadway role that uh, made him a, a, a major star. Wonderfully entertaining movie. Still, it, it holds up beautifully. Golden Globe for Best Actor, Comedy, or Musical went to Marcello Mastriani for Divorce Italian Style. That was a big, like, crossover international hit, yeah? Right, right. Correct, correct, correct. Um, and he um, was the first um, actor in, for uh, who was nominated for a foreign language role, the first male actor to ever get an Oscar nomination in a foreign language movie. He didn't win, but wow. uh, it was a tribute to his great work that he had done and his rising power as a star that he was nominated. And the movie also won the Oscar for Best uh, Original Screenplay, which was also very oh, wow. unusual to have a foreign language movie win uh, in the screenplay yeah. category then. So um, it was, a, it was a, a real success on many levels. Golden Globe for Best Actress, Comedy or Musical to Rosalind Russell for Gypsy. All right, there's your other Broadway adaptation. Big success. Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress to Angela Lansbury for The Manchurian Candidate. Now, see, this is one that I think we look back on now and think she should have won, even though uh, mm -hmm. the, the winner, Patty Duke, was very good. But uh, Angela Lansbury's performance in The Manchurian Candidate Incredible. is one of the greatest performances of all time. Evil, yes, uh, uh, she she's the villain of the piece. But, you know, great villains are often the most interesting characters in the movie. And she certainly was. I wish she had won, even though Patty Duke was very good. But yeah. I, I agree. All right, Mike, uh, let's bang through this uh, box domestic box office top 10. Number 10, In Search of the Castaways. <laughs> okay. Walt, Walt Disney, of course, you 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 guys didn't see that one, right? I no, never saw that. No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, well, I did. I was I was uh, I was twelve in nineteen sixty two. Target audience number nine was a tie between Bon Voyage and the Interns. I am not familiar with either of these motion pictures. And um, not, okay. I did. I think I did see the interns when it came out. It was strictly a programmer, basically. Right. But uh, it had a lot of hot young actors in it, so people went to see it. Yeah, they, they forget those three. They weren't very good <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Number eight, uh, the uh, well-mentioned Gypsy. Yep. Number seven, Hatari, ah, with an exclamation point. Yes. All right. You know Hawks. I love to read the punctuation. Howard Hawks, yes. Howard yes. Hawks, Howard yes. Hawks. Uh, John Wayne. John Wayne, right. and basically and basically a Western set in Africa. So even right. though it was about a safari and they were capturing animals for zoos and circuses, very unpolitically correct these days. Yep. Not, and, but at least but, they weren't uh, killing them. They weren't killing them. They weren't killing them. We're capturing them, right. And right. We'll take the um, victories where we can. Correct, right. correct. Uh, big hit, uh, as you can see, uh, box office success. And another great Henry Mancini score. That's where Baby yep. Elephant Walk comes from. There you go. <laughs> Number six, To Kill a Mockingbird did well. Number five, Mutiny on the Bounty. So, it was, so, so for all intents and purposes, on the surface, it was it was a big hit, which it was, but because of its cost and expenses and everything, the, the turmoil that it caused, it was written off as a as a flop, and it's and and it's gone down in film history as a notorious money loser, which it was for the studio. So uh, Marlon Brando, at the end of the first phase of his career, yep. this was his last big commercial success. Um, and it, it was overshadowed even among the critics that year by the original, the, uh, 1935 with Clark Gable and, um, Charles Lawton. So, but as you will read in the book, we, uh, we do a lengthy discussion about why the film should be reevaluated. It has its merits. Yes. Yes. It has right. its merits. Definitely. Number four, the not that great touch of mink, right. that touch of mink. No. 
Number three, The Music Man, not starring Jason Bailey, unfortunately. <laughs> Number two, well-deserved, Lawrence of Arabia. Bailey, we were one number away from having to bust out the hat trick Hold sound on. effect. Hold on. I think we can use the hat trick sound effect with an asterisk. Um, as the gentleman note in the appendix to the book, uh, the this Lawrence of Arabia was number two at the time, but thanks to its subsequent re-releases, it in fact surpassed the number one film of oh, the shit. year. So yes, we get can, out the hat can trick drop sound out effect. The hat trick sound effect. You are witnessing something quite spectacular. Complete hat-trick! Crazy, just crazy. Remarkable hat-trick. Beautiful, just beautiful. Y'all ready for this? We have guests who have chosen <laughs> the number one financial success of the year, the best picture of the year, and it's also on their top five. But for asterisk purposes, what was at the time the number one movie of the year? The Longest Day. The a, a a big war action epic spectacular uh, from producer Daryl Zanuck. Am I correct? Daryl Zanuck. Uh, he actually made it as an independent producer. He had been right. head of Fox since the 30s uh, uh, up to the 50s, and because of the changes going on, all the independent producers and uh, actors and actresses, and anyway, so he decided to go out on his own in 1956. But he didn't have much success until he bought the rights to Cornelius Ryan's novel, The Longest Day, about the D-Day. And he had the ingenious idea of casting 42, count them, 42 international stars. You can line them up across the CinemaScope screen. And, <laughs> uh, and kind of, of course, if you blink sometimes, you would miss one or two. But uh... All right. Are you guys ready for a lightning round? Sure. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna rotate. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna call out uh, a guest and a title, and we'll go from there. Mike, five minutes on the clock, please. And here we go. Stephen Lolita. Pretty fucking good. Well, Lolita is an outstanding movie. I mean, it was based on a novel that was considered to be unfilmable because it was about a, a middle-aged man and his infatuation and affair with a young teenage girl. And they couldn't quite capture everything that was in the novel, but it was they did capture the satirical humor, which is brilliant in the movie, and it gave a fantastic role to Peter Sellers, one of the one of the movies that put him on the map as an up and coming comic genius. And I think if you can get past the uncomfortable nature of the story, it's a brilliant movie. Michael, we had, in addition to Manchurian Candidate, two more John Frankenheimer movies in 1962, All Fall Down and Birdman of Alcatraz. Well, All Fall Down is the first film that was released in the year, and that stars uh, Angela Lansbury, and that gave him the idea to cast her in The Manchurian Candidate. So for, so that it's notable film mystery right from the start. Also starring Carl Malden and Warren Beatty and Eva Marie Saint. It's a family uh, drama. Written by uh, William, uh, based on a, a play by William Ng. No, I, novel. Stephen Hurley. Novel. He, yeah, James it was a novel. Hurley, right. He wrote Midnight Cowboy later. Correct. I, right. 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 So um, it it's a good little movie. It's a great little film. I would strongly recommend it. Oh, and the other one, Birdman of Alcatraz. Fantastic. Burt Lancaster, uh, a terrific performance by him. A real. Uh, 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 it's basically a biopic about a criminal incarcerated in in the teens until he uh until his death in the 60s so so he was behind bars for for for, for, for over 50, you know almost 50 years um a very compelling film actually um, um against type cast against type playing his very possessive mother Thelma Ritter and usually known for her for comedic and sympathetic roles not very sympathetic in this part. <laughs> and um, both of them were nominated uh, for Oscars that year. And again, black and white, glorious there black and go. white. There you go. Stephen, another very busy young auteur in 1962 was Sidney Lumet, who put out both Long Day's Journey into Night and A View from the Bridge. Right. So those were both uh, theatrical adaptations, both very right. well done. 
uh, especially Long Day's Journey into Night. You know, that's another outstanding film of 1962 that, you know, the, the list just goes on and on. But I mean, it had it was just a four character piece based on the play by Eugene O'Neill, a disturbing family drama about a very dysfunctional, troubled family. Catherine Hepburn doing one of her greatest performances. She considered it the best yeah. role that she ever played on screen. And uh, she plays uh, uh, the mother of this family who, who's a drug addict which was not conventional movie material at the time. And the other actors, uh, uh, Ralph Richardson as the father, uh, uh, Jason Robards as the older brother, Dean Stockwell as the younger brother, all terrific performances. Uh, and it, even though it's basically the play, it doesn't seem stage bound. It's right. done in a very inventive way so that it's uh it's cinematic as Wallace remains very true to the uh, the material michael uh sam peckinpah's ride the high country very good film oh ride the high country that would have been in the top five and one thing i have to insert here is that it was actually hard to come up with five because not because that i mean yeah you could pick 15 movies or 20 movies out of 1962 and talk about them so right it's a sort of a prologue to the wild bunch you know, at the end of the decade. And frankly, I think Steve and I both think it's a superior movie to, to the wild bunch. That may be, uh, you know, I mean, both are very good, but this ride to high country is, is almost a perfect movie. I think. And finally, Stephen, another Western, John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Well, this had some of the same themes as Ride the High Country about the right. dying of the West, the changing of it, and, and the myths that were uh, perpetuated to keep uh, the idea of the West alive. And this is a, a landmark movie also, old-fashioned, more so than the Peckinpah movie, it was mostly shot on studio sets rather than on location. But John Wayne, James Stewart, both excellent in the film. And uh, it has some ironic twists to it that uh, John Ford was questioning some of the straightforward myths of the West that he had perpetuated in his earlier Westerns, going back to Stagecoach. This was a more ironical and kind of... Uh, somewhat melancholy uh, Western that stays with you. And again, I don't know if it was appreciated fully at the time. It's another movie that's whose reputation has grown over the years. And it's now considered Definitely. one of the greatest movies of 1962. And it, you know, didn't get that kind of uh, acclaim when it came out. So some of the movies did get the acclaim and some of them, uh, did deserve it. Some of them, like that touch of Ming, did not deserve it. And then <laughs> movies that did not get the acclaim that are now much more appreciated and endorsed. All right. All right. That concludes our lightning round. And now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. All right, gentlemen, once again, the book is entitled Cinema 62, The Greatest Year at the Movies. It is a wonderful read. It is, it's entertaining. The prose is snappy and smart. And, you know, like all the great film books, anyone who reads it will come away with a big, long list of movies they got to track down and watch. The movies are so good. <laughs> yes. But it's a, it's a really wonderful book, and people can pick it up uh, wherever fine books are sold and then uh do you guys have any other events coming up any of your your screening events yeah we're actually working on a couple of things right now with the revival of the anniversary classic series which had been you know sort of went into deep freeze of course during the pandemic sure. and now we're we emerged out of it last year and finally getting in i may uh if i may uh, interject a little advert a little ad here absolutely um, so your, your listeners um I would encourage you if you if you're so inclined to pick up the book. Um, I can give you a, a little discount advice. Uh, hey. if you go if you go directly to our publisher, Rutgers University Press, go to the Cinema 62 page and put in this promo code. Ready? Hey. 
are cinema 62, just the number 62. Don't spell it out. That's R cinema <laughs> 62. And it'll be a direct to the publisher, no middleman, no Amazon, blah, blah. And you're, and you're, and you're going to get free shipping and 30% off. It's a good deal. Hey. All right. We will put that same link uh, direct to that page and with the discount code on our social media when we put the episode out and also on our web page. Um, I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason-Bailey on Twitter and Letterboxd, where you'll also find under my list vertical the top five lists for every guest of every show to date. Mike, where can people find you? I am Breakin' Lib on Twitter. And Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1962? My favorite movie of 1962 is called La Jetée. Hey. It is a French uh, film. Short film, right? La Jetée is like a surrealist, apocalyptic film. I, you know, it's it's got all these sort of surrealist elements that feel very, you know, thir- 20s, 30s. But it's post-apocalyptic Paris after World War III. Uh, it's just a wild ass movie, and it's there's only actually one thing in it that was shot on a movie camera. <laughs> Everything else is stills. Amazing, but the way it's edited, you know, the music, the sound, the the narration, to me, it holds together as a film. You know, I wouldn't mention it if it was a photo book. You know, <laughs> it, it's just it's really something that I, I I think is really just creative and inventive, and and really is a sort of perfect hinge point between the eras. How about you? My favorite of 62, we mentioned it before, is The Manchurian Candidate. I just feel like it's it's such it's such a tightly wound little clock and everything in it is so precise. Uh, and it's it's such an interesting, you know, when we're, again, the idea of hinge points like it's, you know, this sort of this television director and it's a media satire in a lot of ways. It's a political satire in some ways. It's really a, a merciless take on of McCarthyism pretty close to when it happened, which is pretty ballsy. Um, the political thriller, the suspense aspects of it are just tight as a drum. Every performance in it is so good. Uh, Sinatra fucking crushes it in this movie. And and also, it's the source of one of my favorite pieces of film criticism, which is Greil Marcus's book for the BFI Film Classic series about Manchurian Candidate, is just one of my favorite little short books of film criticism that I've ever read. So that's that's my particular pick. Yeah, if you if you haven't seen the original, yeah. like give yourself the the like pleasure of a Sunday and yeah. like dig in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Thank you again so much, Stephen and Michael, for taking the time to come on and talk to us. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Really uh yes. great conversation. Yes. Yeah, Thank and the time so flew much. by. What oh, happened good. to the time? It was no, it did. It was like, wow, it's it's over already. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very good year.